Hello and happy new year to all our listeners and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter and I'm adding my new year's wish. 2021 is finally here. Oh my God. I thought 2020 would never end. I find that every year I start with, you know, usually with a lot of hope and optimism and enthusiasm, Mooney, but this time I'm just relieved and exhausted that last year is behind us with all its dark news. I know so many challenges remain, the vaccine distribution, the tremendous inequality, political uprisings, terrorism, corruption, racial violence, you know, what happened with the kidnapping of 300 schoolboys in, in Africa and the Sahel was just devastating. But there are also reasons to be optimistic, and we just got to force ourselves into some optimism. And that's why we invited Charles Kenny from the Center for Global Development, who writes about positive trends to join us to kickstart Altamar's 2021 cycle. And we wrapped up the year with one question last time, which is, is the world on a rebound? And the answer is not simple, but because of the dismal news stories, we're actually guys better off than we think. We're wired these days to think in terms of quarterly results and yearly intervals. But if you zoom out, if the doom mongers, you zoom, you tune them out, Let's focus on a couple of areas that are really often buried in endless negativity and try to figure out if humanity is still on the up. So in the effort to remain upbeat, there is actually more than a few um, good news stories around the world that we're going to focus on today. And while global growth has ground to a halt in 2020, the last 50 years have been pretty good. They've seen historic a fivefold increase in GDP per capita around the world. And wealth disparities are still a major issue, but global income inequality has also started looking better. It's declined since the 1990s as poor countries have become slowly richer. And there's encouraging numbers for gradual recovery from the COVID shock even. The OECD calculates a 4.2 global growth next year, led mostly by a significant rebound in China, a lot in South Korea, but market response to growth in manufacturing as well has been encouraging. So has global demand, often surpassing expectations and it hints at quicker than expected results. So yes, we've slid back after a devastating year and it's going to take a while, but the recovery is definitely not impossible. Muni social indicators have also been improving in the past decade. Extreme poverty, life expectancy, child mortality, education, running water access, literacy and vaccination. They've all moved in the right direction across the world. And recently, NGOs and relief organizations have redoubled their efforts to address famine and disease and work conditions, creating new standards to distribute aid worldwide while they work on the ground to eliminate all the strife and troubles. So there's also another issue that is really not super sexy because it's also not in fashion, which is uh, globalization. And it is alive and kicking and it is a trigger for growth, even in the middle of this neo-protectionist wave that's sprung up all over the world. We've seen the creation of gigantic trading blocks like the Asia Pacific's RCEP. It's the largest trading block in the world. It overlaps with TPP, the Pacific Rim. It's got 15 countries and a big chunk of global GDP. 
We've seen the USMCA, former NAFTA with Mexico and Canada and the US as recent examples of the vitality of trade and investment around the globe with added benefits to labor, environment and technological provisions. It's weird um, because it, there's a there's a positive externality to trade and it's these agreements make the signatories address other urgent social priorities beyond tariffs and commerce and place pretty stringent restrictions on labor, on the environment, on human rights. And so that, in, coupled with investment flows, supply chain reshoring and innovation has also, have also flourished in the past couple of years. Another thing that obviously has everybody talks about as sort of having brought enormous benefit is the access to technology as a vehicle of social progress. You know, there are so many issues with technology that are negative, which, you know, from privacy to surveillance capitalism to data hacking, but technology has advanced society. You know, if you just think of, you know, telemedicine as one big example of that, it is so important. And, you know, I think that sort of disruptive applications like blockchains is going to become a vehicle for even greater progress in the future. If you're a business looking for nearshoring, you're going to want to look at technology to help you figure out supply chains to weather uncertainty, increase efficiencies. And I think that's where technology really can continue helping us. And a COVID was once thought to push the environmental emergency into the back burner, and it really hasn't. It has shed light on the climate emergency more than any other event in recent history. And rising consciousness about sustainability, renewable energy, environmentally friendly industries will obviously not translate into better practices, but could also create new employment opportunities for recovery. And these conversations are advancing at the global level, from the Paris Peace Forum to the recent G20. 20. And who knows, maybe these groups that we've even discussed here that might be obsolete or need a new agenda can kickstart new investment practices and create a post-COVID green jobs and transformation that will really trigger business. Okay. And I got two more things on my list of good news. It's hard, right? To build a fully optimistic list. But um, once you research, it's not that terrible. No, I think it's, I think it's great this, that, that we're doing this because everybody is so involved in the sort of news story of the day and in the COVID story of the day or in the political story of the day that I think it's so important to zoom out and make a list of the things that really are getting better. And the one of the, I got two more things here, as I was saying, Mooney, and they are speaking of businesses, you know, corporate governance is on the rise as CEOs step in to create coalitions, you know, around the world to address issues in technology and climate change, discrimination, gender equality, and sustainability, and filling in the gaps of weak and ineffective governments that we have seen all over the world, including in the United States and Europe. The private sector is increasingly a political player. And I think that's great. I think that uh, increasingly the private sector's job is not only to talk about value, as in like how many dollars is their product, but about values and what each of these companies represent. And I think that's incredibly important. And the last thing I have on my list, Mooney, in 2021 is that in just very few days, the end of the Trump administration is in itself, I guess, one of the best good news stories of the world. I'm really hopeful about a return of U.S. leadership and that we're going to patch up broken bonds with traditional allies, put the end on glorifying dictators and wannabe dictators around the world. And I, I, I got to say, I got, I, I'm celebrating that, too. 
So we've we've managed to come up with a pretty substantial list in what we have internally been calling the optimism episode. And seen from this lens, the world is definitely a better place, even a better place than a couple of years ago. And it might not sound that reassuring to many right now, of course, as we are kind of in the dark still, but the economic recovery will be bumpy, but it will happen. Dramatic job losses um, have caused a ton of pain and suffering, especially to medium and small businesses, especially in developing countries. Um, and they've tanked, but emerging markets are struggling and some are uh, forging ahead. And, and to quote The Economist and its global trends publication, it is really not all doom and gloom. And a lot remains to be done, especially on poverty and inequality, but there are definitely lights at the end of this tunnel. So Mooney, let's hear from our guest, Charles Kenny. Charles is the Director of Technology and Development at the Center for Global Development. His current work focuses on gender and development, the role of technology, governance, and anti-corruption. He's studied topics like the cause of improvements in global health, the link between economic growth and happiness, the role of communications technologies in development, among other things. He's also the author of several books on improving the world, including the most recent called the plague cycle about humankind's struggle with disease. Welcome, Charles, to Altamar. Thanks so much for having, having me and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So let me let me just begin by asking you, what's your mood here in 2021? How, how are you how are you feeling? Optimistic, <laughs> pessimistic? Um, it, it, I, I began the program by saying I am so damn glad that 2020 is over. So. <laughs> Couldn't agree more with that. Um, so I am you know, broadly optimistic. Um, I think, you know, the vaccine will spread. Uh, China is already sort of bounced back and global trade looks like it's bouncing back. You know, I think there, there are reasons to think that we, we can get back on track reasonably fast. Um, there's also sort of reason to vote for more global cooperation. You know, the U.S. taking its its role back at the global table. And you know, hopefully we'll see renewed progress on, on climate and Iran and a bunch of other issues. You know, that said, um, we're not out of the woods. Um, in the U.S., it took a long time to recover from the last recession. You know, the economy is not as nimble as it used to be. So it may be that that takes longer than we might hope. And in the rest of the world, um, you know, it's going to take a while for the vaccines to roll out. Uh, there's developing country debt issues mounting. So, you know, I'd say I'd say we're, we're out of a storm maybe, but certainly not in smooth sailing quite yet. You know, Mooney and I are both Latin Americanists. Well, that's unfair because Mooney is actually a Latin American. But one of the things we see so much in so many parts of the developing world where so many of our fellow humans live is that, you know, the improvements in combating poverty and inequality are one of the big casualties of the COVID pandemic. And it's erased so much progress in the development world. How, how do you see the opportunity to recover from that? I have to say I'm, I'm particularly sort of depressed about uh, Latin America. I mean, more than Asia or Africa, it was hit hard by COVID. The economic signs are still fairly grim. And, you know, it's still dealing with you know, a number of populist leaders uh, of, of major countries who just aren't delivering for their citizens. So, again, you know, I wouldn't want to sound uh, um, too optimistic overall, but I, I do think that there are um, positive signs. So far, many of the world's most poorest countries, in, um, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, have seen a comparatively light uh, health impact from COVID. Now, that's in part because they actually locked down strong and early um, and, you know, that cost wages and, and put governments deeper into debt. So, you know, I, it's, a, it's a positive story with, uh, with elements of worry. Um, 
every new vaccine approval that comes along, you know, expands the pipeline of drugs, uh, and we, we're getting drugs in the pipeline that are much easier to transport. And a lot of the forces that are undergirding sort of longer term progress, things like other health technologies and expanded education and policy progress are, are getting back on track. I mean, again, to look at Africa, the, the new Africa continental free trade area, I think is a really exciting moment for the region. And they're getting back on track to roll it out. And so I think that's all signs of, of moving back to a long-term set of indicators on progress that were fairly positive. And in, in some ways, the tragedy of COVID demonstrates that. This huge global pandemic temporarily reversed just three or four years of worldwide progress against uh, extreme poverty reduction, for example. You know, that's how fast we were making progress. And I hope we go back to that very soon. Speaking of agreements and, and trade, you're a globalist, and we've seen as part of the good news stories that there have been important trade blocks and agreements signed and, and negotiated in the past few years. And um, one of the positive externalities of these of these trade agreements is that they do include environmental labor, human rights clauses, um, intellectual property provisions, etc. Do you think that beyond the benefits for trade and investment, these agreements could be kind of a, a new template for for international behavior in all of these issues? So I do think you know global global norms of behavior have been really important. I mean, you know, dating all the way back to the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights that has been written into a bunch of constitutions. Now it's ignored in lots of places as much as it is uh, followed, but still, you know, uh, when people ignore it, um, they know they're doing something that's strictly illegal. So I'm hugely in favor of the spread of norms of behavior through international agreements, and more trade is definitely a good thing. You know, sort of in and of itself, uh, not least if you look at the majority of countries worldwide, they can't produce vaccines by themselves. They can't manufacture the freezers we need to hold some of these vaccines in. They can't manufacture the trucks that we need to deliver the vaccines. You know, So, so trade is a really important tool to deliver technologies that have a massive impact on the quality of life. And in particular, I am a big fan of, of trade clauses you know, with bite that help to ensure uh, human rights and labor standards are respected, You know, that we don't create a market for goods produced by prison labor, for example. But that all said, the labor standards have to be reasonable, right? M manufacturers in poor countries just can't afford to pay their workers the same as we pay workers in the US, because for a host of reasons, you know, capital and infrastructure and institutions and so on, labor productivity is a lot lower in those countries. That's the big reason those countries are poor in the first place. So, you know, we need standards that protect rights in those developing countries, but don't stifle the opportunity created by trade agreements. And frankly, when it comes to intellectual property rules in particular, I would say we're trying to force standards on developing countries that are not only bad for them, they're sort of bad for us, uh, that we have intellectual property standards in the United States that are too strong for our own good. There's no evidence that, you know, century-long copyrights increase innovation. There's no evidence that the pretty low standards we have for what's patentable in the US supports more rapid technological advance here. Quite the opposite, and it will be even worse in developing countries. So, Yes, for using trade agreements to normalize and globalize basic standards that everybody should have for the you know the quality of work, you know, but we can go too far and we need to be careful to get the balance right. 
the other thing I think that everybody is talking about is technology and how is technology an instrument for progress or isn't it? <laughs> and um, yeah. you know, I, maybe I should just leave the question right there. Is it or, <laughs> is it or isn't it? Um, so you know, I'm 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 broadly a technology uh, uh, optimist, which is you know lucky given my day job, if you will. But you know, I guess ask me back on uh, after a terrorist has developed some new version of COVID nineteen that in, in, in his backyard bioreactor. You know, clearly technology can be used for a great deal of evil. But while you know we really have to confront those risks. Technological progress is the big reason why we've gone from a planet with a population in the millions living in subsistence and dying in their 30s to a population of billions, if anything, overfed and you know widely educated and mostly comfortably housed and living into their 70s. I mean, you know, go back to vaccines again. We, you know, we've wiped out smallpox. That's something that used to kill, you know, hundreds of millions uh, in a century. And we've had the COVID vaccine this year. And you know, we probably wouldn't have even noticed COVID in the past. Sort of, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we were talking about the risk of two million deaths in the US a year. That just would have brought us back to the average annual infectious death rate we took for granted in the earlier years of the 20th century in the US. You know, that's the kind of progress we've made. So, I do think it's it's overwhelmingly a positive. Now, there are there are you know there are there are real concerns and and, and real issues. Um, you know, around around privacy, for example. I think there are responses. Uh, you know, privacy is sort of a right we created. Privacy a thing is a thing that takes laws and institutions to protect. You know, we need to be updating the laws and institutions to make sure they keep up with our, our, our technology. And, and that certainly takes effort. My, my colleague uh, at CGD, Mike Pisa, is, is looking at the rules around data globally. You know, we need rules for for data. And with the internet, which is you know, a worldwide web, we need global rules uh, for, for for privacy that that work. And it's it's complex stuff. But I, you know, I think we're we're a smart enough species to figure it out if 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 we put our minds to it. So while I I do accept there are sort of downsides to technological advance, they are downsides that we know how to deal with, um, and we just need to get on and and deal with them because the sort of upside potential is so huge. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the international system and probably in the national, what I mean is mostly sort of the development organizations that have injected a lot of, a lot of resources and know-how in how to address large problems. And, you know, we've seen issues like, you know, the fires and hurricanes look connected to climate change, but also issues, you know, such as the health issue that we've just, that we've just gone through this year and we'll go through for the following year. Can we improve how the development institutions and the international system responds to this in a way? Are you optimistic that we have lessons learned here that will help us deal with future crises, whether they be health crises or others? I guess I'm pretty sure we've got lessons learned, whether we'll, we'll apply them, I, I admit, to a bit more doubt around. I mean, take the climate change issue. There's a, a recent IMF paper suggesting that it would cost just 1% of global GDP to stay below two degrees warming. Now, that's a, a low estimate compared to others that, you know, range up to 6%. But even, you know, 6%, it's a massively good deal. And yet, somehow, here we have this eminently fixable problem that we're making progress on, but we're really not doing as well as we should. And we haven't come together in, in, in the way we should to, to deal with it. In some ways, we've gone backwards. We've gone from an international agreement that actually had supposedly legally binding targets to one that's sort of more about 
everybody saying, yeah, we promise to do this. So I do think international cooperation has stuttered, and you can see it again with the response to, to COVID. If you look at you know what the World Bank and the IMF managed to pump into developing countries rapidly at the start of the crisis to help protect against massive income drops in, in developing countries, it was frank, frankly pretty pathetic. You know, I have friends who work in the IMF and the World Bank. I'm not blaming them. Um, you know, just the system hasn't been pumped with enough money to make that uh, something they could do. So. For all sorts of reasons, I think, you know, we're, we're a sort of low point in global cooperation compared to the last few de- decades. Now, maybe this is a silver lining out of the COVID-19 crisis. You know, maybe that offers the opportunity for a reset. And, and one reason for thinking that's not, you know, implausible is if you look at some of the earliest global international agreements, they were around global public health issues. So they were, you know, around agreements on, on, on movement of ships and stuff during the cholera epidemics of the 19th century. You know, we made massive progress against smallpox, you know, eradicated it worldwide through a global effort. COVID has rammed home how much we live in a global disease pool and, you know, how, how, how much we have to work together on this. So, you know, maybe a silver lining out of this will be a, a renaissance in international cooperation more widely, and I really hope so. Charles, one of what we consider to be a good news story is um, that we are on the eve of a presidential transition and (laughs) on what people widely believe is the return of the U.S. to the global conversation, to the global table as a player in the international community. Is this going to be a game changer or has the world changed so much that there are other players that are going to be dominating the future? Um, I'm very happy the the U.S. is going to come back as a player. Look, it's not as overwhelmingly dominant as it used to be in in trade and investment, even in technology advance. But it is still a very big, very rich, very powerful country. And an engaged US is pretty much vital to deal with any major global issue, sort of from climate to global health, to international finance, to trade, to security. And so we need the US at the table. We need the the, the US uh, engaged. And it's great that it looks like that's likely to happen. I will say that, you know, more big players around the table does make any negotiation a bit more complex. You know, we need goodwill and engagement, not just from the US, but also from the EU, also from China, also from India. And, you know, I, I hope we see it. And I hope we, we, we get on back back on track. Um, because, as I said, I think we certainly need much more international cooperation in a bunch of areas. So, Here's hoping. (laughs) (laughs) So you made a a rather modest uh, reference to the the history of infectious disease and uh, the the role of mankind in global plagues. And and of course, you were referencing your new book, The Plague Cycle, about the history exactly of that. And that seems so timely today. Uh, Can you talk to us uh, for a minute about the book and how um, how it relates to the current situation, the speed at which the COVID vaccine was made available and how to view the COVID situation from a historical perspective of pandemics. Well, thank you very much. Yes, I do indeed have a book coming out in January from Scribner, available at all good bookshops. Um, So first, I mean, I I think, you you know, you do have to look at the the progress side. You know, we wouldn't have recognized COVID as a new disease for the vast majority of human history, just because so many people were dying of infection, respiratory diseases every year. You know, COVID would have been a blip uh, of an uptick on the death rate. And second, um, you know, as you've mentioned, you know, vaccine development 
has been a massive accomplishment. You know, for most of history, we never would have developed a vaccine. You know, even recently, it usually take, has taken about 10 years to get from uh, recognizing a, a disease to, to developing a, a vaccine for it. And, you know, we, we managed it in, in less than one. Um, and it's not just the vaccine, you know, it's also that the, the testing which became available within, you know, weeks, a month or two of, of COVID emerging, you know, the antibody treatment, you know, a whole, whole bunch of incredibly rapid medical advances that are only possible, you know, thanks to the world we built. But the third thing I'd say, sort of looking at it from a historical perspective is we have had 300,000 deaths in the US. And we've had, you know, around 2 million worldwide. We've had a huge global recession. And this is after at least a century of more or less knowing what to do to limit deaths from airborne diseases. The cover of, of the my book, the, you know, The Plague Cycle, is a fantastic cover. It draws from a magazine image of the Grim Reaper spreading pneumonic plague in Manchuria in 1911. Now, pneumonic plague is like the, the plague of the Black Death, only a bit worse because it also spreads through coughs and sneezes. Now, that outbreak was controlled in 1911, in four months, in the midst of a war, in one of the poorest countries in the world, by using isolation of the sick, masks, and travel restrictions. Sound familiar? We, need, we know what to do to deal with these diseases for over a century. There is no excuse for how badly we've done this time, you know, not just in the US, but in large parts of Europe and Latin America. So. You know, sort of looking at this in the historic in a historical perspective, I guess I'd say two things. We're incredibly lucky to be facing COVID with the technology and knowledge we have today rather than a hundred or a thousand years ago. But we were incredibly incompetent in using the knowledge and technologies we've had for over a hundred years to deal with the problem. Let me just shift, Charles, as we as we close this interview and ask you who you see will be leading a global recovery. I mean, it's just, you know, everybody you read, well, you know, the recovery either is going to be sharp or, or small, but there is a consensus around the world recovery. I mean, do you see Asia leading that at this point? Do you, you've already mentioned how China is beginning to, to come out of it, uh, South Korea. Do you see that as being the fundamental locomotive of a, of a global recovery now? I think I, I, I do. Um sort of East Asia more, more broadly, you know, Taiwan, Singapore as well, um, has done reasonably well with COVID and seems to be leading leading the, the sort of the economic charge. Um, I, I would also want to put a plug for, for, for Africa again. While I'm worried about Latin America, I, I do think Africa was doing pretty well in global growth over the last decade and a half. And I think there's no reason for it to stop. And, you know, if anything, COVID makes it look even better comparatively at least and I, I certainly hope that's true because sort of from the point of view of global well-being development in africa has the biggest bang for your buck if you will so uh the more that sub-saharan africa does well uh, the happier i'll be charles kenny thank you so much for joining us on altamar with an optimistic note to what the world what's happening in the world thanks so much for having me on mooney will after listening to charles are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? What are you hopeful about? I am definitely an optimist, usually, um, especially now that 
2020 is over. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for globalization. I'm hopeful for the good use of technology. I'm hopeful for regional recovery. It really is, is hard to see a, a situation that could be as dire as 2020. I'm worried about Latin America. I think that's a, it's a, it's a spot that requires a lot of attention, especially on the political and on the social unrest side. So that's a little, a little note of concern in an otherwise happy outlook. I join you, Mooney. I th- I, uh, I'm also hopeful about where the world is going. I hope that the recovery is going to be fast, speedy, and sharp. You know, and I am worried about the United States. I'm worried about the continued polarization. I'm worried about the fact that 60 to 70 million people think that there was massive electoral fraud. And h- how do you bridge that gap? And I think it's a it's a real challenge for what is coming because without the strength of the United States which has always been not consistently and not not always but it has been a basically a force for good in the world with the United States just looking at its belly button and wondering about how it gets together the world is a poorer place. That's right. And I and I agree with you. It's a mixed bag. We hope to share um, the good and bad news stories with our listeners on Altamar. Again, Happy New Year from Peter and I. And thank you for listening. <laughs>